I invite you to stand this morning for our scripture, which comes from 1 Corinthians 13. Actually, the last little phrase of the, ver- the chapter before, in which Paul speaks to spiritual gifts, and he concludes that with, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I, that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. Where there are tongues, they will be still. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, I just pray for your Holy Spirit to be free to work and move among us this morning, to speak to us on this matter of love, that in whatever way each one of us needs to be moved, you will bring that out, that we might more and more exemplify the love that you have given to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What is love? Well, here are some answers that were collected from just a few children. When my grandmother got arthritis and she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore, so my grandfather does it for her all the time, even though his hands got arthritis too. That's love. Love is when someone hurts you, and you get so mad, but you don't yell at them because you know that would hurt their feelings. Love is when mommy sees daddy all smelly and sweaty and still says he is handsomer than George Clooney. And then, then another child wrote this. You shouldn't say, I love you, unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot. People forget. I like that one. There have been many songs written about love down through the years. The old Beatles song said, 
all you need is love. One could argue that that might be pretty good theology after all. Jesus said that all the law and the prophets hang on the two greatest commandments, which are to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. However, that song is not very descriptive or helpful as to the nature of love. You remember the chorus is, all you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love. Love. Love is all you need. Not terribly helpful. The verses are a bit baffling also. The first verse is, there's nothing you can do that can't be done. Love, love, love. Nothing you can sing that can't be sung. Love, love, love. Nothing you can say, but you can learn how to play the game. It's easy. Another is, nothing you can make that can't be made. No one you can save that can't be saved. Nothing you can do, but you can learn how to be you in time. It's easy. I'm not sure what any of that has to do with love, but it is easy. So that's, I guess, something positive. Actually, if it's easy, it's probably not love. Actually, the song represents a weak and confused view of love that permeates our world, especially today. I don't think turning to more recent popular songs about love would give any better guidance. We need to go to God's word to get an accurate picture. The scripture read earlier is often referred to as the love chapter. It's read at weddings and often presented as a picture of how love should work in the marriage relationship. And certainly, if we would all learn to love our spouses and our, our, and our families in that way, the way the passage describes, there would be fewer divorces and, and fewer broken homes. Our relationships, relationships would be stronger and healthier and happier. However, in the context of Paul's letters, this is not about marriage. You might remember back in chapter 7, he addressed marriage concerns, and he didn't include this in that discussion. Rather, he places it here, right in the middle or the heart of his instructions regarding spiritual gifts, proper worship, and building up the body of Christ. Paul is describing the kind of love that we are to display in the church, the love that should be evident in the lives of those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. The Greek language has at least three words that translate into English as love. You probably know these. Eros is a word for sexual love. It's not used anywhere in the Bible. Phileo is the word for brotherly love, from which we get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, at least when their sports teams are winning. When they tank, it's a whole different story. The Greek word for the deepest kind of sacrificial love is agape. And apparently, back in that day, that was very rare in the writing of the Greeks. But it's all through the New Testament. And it's certainly the word that Paul uses in this passage. In fact, this passage is probably the best definition of agape love that we have. And I want to approach Paul's description in terms of three P's, three P's. First is the absolute priority of love. The absolute priority of love. The only way that agape love is going to be reflected in our lives is if it is the absolute priority of our life. 
the Corinthians prided themselves in their spirituality and their spiritual gifts. But they were obviously lacking in love. So Paul contrasts these very gifts in which they took pride with love in order to show them the error of their thinking. First, he refers to the tongues of men and angels. Tongues of men may refer to human eloquence, while tongues of angels probably clearly refers to the gift of tongues, communicating with or from God in an unknown language. The Corinthians valued, valued this gift highly as a sign of God's power in their life. We might include other gifts, such as miracles and healing, which are obvious signs of supernatural power. Such displays of power are meaningless without love, as is human eloquence. Paul writes, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. He probably had in mind meaningless, distracting noise. But, but this may be something more. Gongs and cymbals were a major part of pagan worship in Corinth. So Paul may have been putting the loveless use of spiritual gifts on a par with the meaningless worship of pagan idols. Whatever power is evident in our lives, it's meaningless without love. Next, Paul lumps together the gifts of prophecy, understanding, mysteries, and knowledge. And we could probably add in teaching, wisdom, discernment, and maybe some others to that list. It's important that we have good doctrine and, and sound teaching in the church that we're hearing from God and, and that we're growing in wisdom and understanding of his word. But correct doctrine and, and, and teaching are nothing without love either. If we simply use our correct doctrine to beat people up, if we use our wisdom and knowledge to, to put down people with whom we disagree, if we use our understanding to exclude people from fellowship, what are we? Paul says, I am nothing. In truth, when we use the gifts that God has given us in this way, I would suggest that we're less than zero. We actually become a negative to the body and to others. Paul moves on to the gift of faith, and not just any faith, faith that can move mountains, faith that can make the seemingly impossible happen. Even dynamic faith without love is nothing. James wrote that faith without action is dead, and our actions need to be grounded in that priority of love. I often hear people talk about how, how strong their faith is, how much they trust in Jesus, how confident they are of the future, and that's great. Put it together with agape love, and you've got something very powerful. Finally, Paul addresses sacrificial giving. Giving all that we have to the poor, giving our body over to hardship. I believe another translation says giving over our bodies to the flames. He might be referring to the spiritual gifts of giving, martyrdom, helps, hospitality, service, voluntary poverty. But the most sacrificial of giving without love accomplishes nothing. Paul says, I gain nothing if I don't have love. What else might, might motivate such sacrifices? We might be trying to impress others to, to gain human approval. We might be trying to gain divine approval. Some people think, seem to think that when they stand before God, 
he's going to be impressed by how much they gave to the church or, or the service they performed or, or the things that they helped build. Paul assures us that none of that is going to gain us anything unless it's motivated by genuine love for God and his people. My second P is the power of love from verses 4 through 7. I know there's another old classic song about the power of love. I'm, I'm not going to break that out this morning. Most writers refer to this section as the qualities or characteristics of love. I chose the word power because as I look at these verses, it seems obvious that unless the power of God is working in my life, there's no way my life can reflect this kind of love. Let's clear one thing up before we go any further. Love is not a spiritual gift. One writer I was reading for this message kept referring to love as a gift. Certainly, we might consider God's love as a gift to us, but it's certainly not one of the gifts of the Spirit that he gives to each one just as he determined. Rather, Paul tells us in Galatians that love is part of the fruit of the Spirit, along with joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Not surprisingly, Paul puts love at the top of that list. Fruit is something that is produced naturally over time. Jesus used the example of himself as the grapevine and, and us as the branches. And he said that if we remain in him, we will bear much fruit. What kind of fruit? Well, it would be grapes. Because we're talking about a grapevine, it would not be broccoli or, or potatoes or wheat. If we're walking with Jesus Christ in the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit will naturally begin to appear in our lives. And that includes the fruit of love. It's not given to one believer and, and not to others. It's to be evident and growing in each one of our lives. We can't say, that's not my gift, and excuse ourselves. Paul has 15 characteristics of agape love. And it's interesting to note that in the Greek, these qualities are expressed as verbs, not adjectives. They are action words. Love isn't static. It's not an inner feeling tucked away somewhere deep in our heart. It's dynamic and active. It's demonstrated in our lives. Paul isn't telling what love feels like or, or what love looks like. He's telling us how love acts what love does or doesn't do. And commentators point out that the implication is habitual as well as present actions. Habitual as well as present actions. Love isn't something that we do every now and then. It's the consistent pattern of our lives. The knots in this list, love does not boast, is not proud, and so on, probably describe the believers in Corinth. They were, they were motivated by self. They were dominated by the ego. If these negatives to love could be descriptive of the church back then, we need to be careful. They could very well be true of us as well. The positive, the do's in this list, love is patient, love is kind, and so on, are dominated by a concern for others and not self. This is the kind of love that should be very evident in us. It's been pointed out that if you substitute the name Jesus for the word love throughout this passage, it would be every bit as true, it would make every bit as much sense, it would be every bit as important. 
These verses are the way that we should be experiencing God in our lives on a daily basis if he is our personal Lord and Savior. What are the specific actions that reflect the love of Christ? Love is patient. There's got to be power involved for love to make me patient. Love is kind. It treats others with concerns and respect. I can be kind unless you've exhausted my very limited patience. It's not jealous, boastful, proud, or rude. We should be careful a little bit, I think, on this point of jealousy. One writer boldly states, love and jealousy are mutually exclusive. Where one is, the other cannot be. That sounds good. The problem is that God, who is love, told Moses in giving him the Ten Commandments, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God. God wants our highest devotion and allegiance for himself. He is jealous of anything that comes before, comes between him and us. Within marriage, each partner should desire and expect that same kind of exclusive devotion and affection. The jealousy that has no place in, our, in love is desiring what others have or, or wishing them ill because of what they have. Love does not demand its own way, but is concerned for what others want. Love is not easily angered or irritable. Actually, if you go through this passage, pretty much all of it stands in contrast to the way that we usually display our anger. Love keeps no record of wrongs. When Peter, told, when Peter asked Jesus if he should forgive a person up to seven times, Jesus' answer of, of 77 or 490, depending on which translation you use, Jesus was not advocating detailed record-keeping. He was saying, stop counting. Love doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It finds no pleasure when bad things happen to others. It finds joy when truth and justice win out. And love is always protective of others. Love always trusts in God and looks for the best in others. Love always holds on to hope and holds out that hope to others. Love never gives up on people or God. It endures to the end. The late actor Patrick Swayze wrote a memoir with his wife Lisa prior to his death and he wrote this. The one thing I realized as Lisa and I retraced the arc of our lives is that no matter what happened we never gave up on each other or on our dreams. I'm far from perfect and I've made a lot of mistakes but that's one thing we got right. Love never gives up. And that brings me to my third P, the permanence of love. The permanence of love. Paul continues in verses 8 and 9 to contrast the fruit of the Spirit, love, with the gifts of the Spirit. And he uses the gifts of tongues, knowledge, and prophecy. Tongues and knowledge were gifts in which, again, the Corinthians took great pride. And prophecy was a gift on which Paul put the higher priority. His point is that, is that in contrast to love, spiritual gifts are temporary. Even the most vital of these gifts is only for the present time. They are for the age of grace in which we live. In this present world, our knowledge of God's word 
his plan for our lives, and even the time of his return are extremely limited, like a poor reflection in a bad mirror. So spiritual gifts are essential to building up the body. But one day, that will all change. We'll know all about God. We will know him just as we are known by him. There will be no need for spiritual gifts of knowledge, prophecy, wisdom, discernment, and so on. We will already be speaking a heavenly language. There will be no need for the gift of tongues. Perfection is coming. And when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Some translations have, when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. I don't think that really changes the meaning at all. To what is Paul referring? In chapter 15 of this letter, Paul's going to write about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And then he's going to write about our resurrection from the dead. That moment in which we will all be changed. The blink of an eye when our perishable bodies will be transformed into eternal heavenly bodies. Our ultimate victory over death. Then we will be with Jesus forever. We will see him face to face and we will be like him. That's perfection. That's completeness. In the meantime, there are three essentials for reaching our destination. Faith, hope, and love. We must have faith, and we, and we really need to keep it strong. We need to believe in Jesus as the Son of God and our own personal Lord and Savior. We need to trust in his sacrifice on the cross as the payment for our sins. And we must continually rely on the promises in his word. And we must have hope. We talked about this a bit in the Focus Sunday School class last Sunday. We are lost without hope. Without our hope of forgiveness, of eternal life, of a home in heaven, what would motivate us to persevere and live the life that God has called us to live? And we need love. Love for God, love for each other, love in the body. Without the ability to both give and receive love, we shrivel up and die spiritually, if not physically. The message paraphrase reads, Trust steadily in God, hope unswervingly, love extravagantly. Of course, the greatest of these gifts is love, because love is eternal. When perfection comes, faith will be made sight and will be, and will be rewarded. Faith as we know it now will no longer exist. And our hopes will be realized. Heaven, being in God's presence being reunited with loved ones, the end of sorrow, pain, suffering, and death. What more will there be to hope for? But love will remain. God's love for us, our love for God, our love for each other, those will be eternal. I believe they will be just as evident and important in heaven as they are here. And they, too, will be made perfect and complete. As I read this passage, I'm convicted by how imperfect, how incomplete my love is. And I'm struck by the words, love never fails. Love never fails. There is only one love that never fails. Human love, at least mine, fails repeatedly. My love for my wife, my kids, my my larger family, for my brothers and sisters in Christ, comes up short over and over again. It comes up short because I'm impatient. I battle with pride. At times I can be very self-centered and easily annoyed. My love at its very best can't 
always protect. It's simply not in my power to be everywhere and handle every situation in which protection is needed. And nothing I could possibly do could open the door of eternal life to you. I have no power to reach down into your heart and soul and transform you into a child of God. That's the nature, that's the limitation of human love. Fortunately, there is a love beyond human love. There's a love that perfectly fulfills the qualifications listed in our text, and it's God's love, expressed in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. In his perfectness and his faithfulness, he more than lives up to the loving action that's described here. In his unlimited power, he protects and provides and comforts in any and every situation. Nothing is too hard for him. Nothing is beyond his ability. And he not only can, he already has opened the door to eternal life. He died on the cross to pay for our sins so that we might be forgiven. And he rose again and ascended to his Father so that you and I could live in relationship with him on a daily basis through prayer and through time spent in his word. He became your advocate so that when you stand before the Father at the time of your death when Jesus returns, he will be your defense and you will be welcomed to your eternal home in heaven. When you open your heart to him, confess your sin and your need for a savior, he'll come into your heart He'll transform your life. He'll make you whole and new and right in his sight. And that is the triumph of God's love. That's the triumph of God's love. If you're here this morning and you've never taken hold of that incredible love of God, there's no way that you can love as we've described this morning. It has to come through God working and moving in your life. So if you've never taken hold of that triumph of God's love and experience that triumph in your own life. Don't let today go by without making that decision to claim salvation in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great, great love for us. Love that has opened the door to eternal life with you new life right now transformed life right now I just pray that for each one of us we might be knowing and experiencing that love not just for ourselves but that it might shine through in our lives to, the, to those around us who do not know that love and who need that love in Jesus name we pray